Welcome to episode 2070 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined by Ben Lindberger, The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Well, in some parts of the country, the leaves are changing, and there's oh. a chill in the air, and people are stocking up on Halloween supplies. And mm-hmm. also, we're talking about teams having too much time off, and Clayton Kershaw not pitching well, and managers oh. leaving starters in too long. So, it is October. It yeah. feels like October in every possible sense, <laughs> baseball-wise and otherwise. And it's like, uh, you know, these are the, the feelings. These are the beats of October. Some of them are sillier. Some of them are sadder. But all of them are pretty familiar. Are you worried about too much rest, Ben? Are you a, a rest truther? Let me tell you, people had uh, takes about your conductor take. My, oh, my yes. stars. I will save that for the end of the episode just in case (laughs) during the playoffs people aren't most interested in the responses to my take on conductors but yes (laughs) but as for too much rest would a too much rest truther i guess would be that that too much rest is bad that uh the the buy is bad potentially because teams that get to sit for four or five days are rusty and are at a disadvantage, even though they are the better teams. I guess that would be the direction of the trutherism, right? That that, that matters, that that is harmful as opposed to helpful or neither neutral. And I'm in the camp of, I don't think this matters. I yeah. am, am not ruling it out entirely because... If you think about it, there's got to be a point where we go from it being an advantage to being a disadvantage time off, right? I mean, you know, you take months off, that's going to be a disadvantage if you've not played. But if you have one day off, everyone I would think would think that that's probably an advantage. You get to rest, you get to line up your bullpen and everyone's a little bit fresher. So where is the line? Where does it go from advantage to disadvantage or advantage to neither to just neutral? It's got to be somewhere, but I don't think it is as soon as some people are saying it. It's just based on Fairly small sample results, right, based on mostly what happened in the Division Series last year and how the Division Series started this year with the better teams going down 0-2 in many cases or at least 0-1 and struggling into Game 2. A little bit of a rocky start for the higher-seeded teams. And so we're having the debate again about whether, in fact, this does not help teams, but it actually hurts them. So, look, here's the thing. Um, we don't have enough information about the expanded wild card era. What are we yeah. have we have we landed on a an agreed upon moniker for this wild card era? Because we need to distinguish it from the wild card era, which meant yeah a, a different thing. The yeah. expanded postseason era. Yeah, you've got your your two wild card, your dual, your double wild card but era. There were always, there were always single, two wild. Cards. I mean. Two, two in each league, <laughs> your your quadruple wild card era, or you could just call it the twelve team playoffs. Maybe. Oh, okay, yeah, sure. Okay, <laughs> so we we've had two years of this playoff format, so we we obviously can't say a whole heck of a lot about what it 
portends for like the future of the postseason. And I'm sympathetic to the to the anxiety here. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. I'm generally sympathetic to anxiety, but um, <laughs> I'm sympathetic to the anxiety here when this started percolating as a topic. You know, I did what I often do, which is I was like, hey, Ben Clemens, go write about this, won't you? <laughs> and he was like, yep. We were kind of chatting it through before he sat down to write. And I, I was like, I, I get the anxiety here. Like, I think that the danger of the expanded postseason format is that it sort of it pushes teams more toward the middle. Right. And you feel like maybe you win 54 percent of your games just to pick a number and you might you're in it. You're in the mix for a wild card spot. And we want teams to view winning their division and winning it such that you secure a first round buy to be as attractive a proposition as possible because it pulls the whole endeavor upward, right? It incentivizes teams to put as good a a roster on the field as they possibly can. It incentivizes them to add at the deadline, right? Like we want that to matter. It's important that it does. And so I get it. But I, I think that in general, what we are witnessing is there's the idiosyncratic sort of weaknesses of each of the rosters involved here. There's the fact that you know, this happened to be a year where all of the wild card series concluded in two games and didn't require a third. Mm-hmm. But I think it's okay. I think it's going to be okay. I don't think that this is sort of like blunting the tip of the one seed spear, right? And it's a weird thing to worry about this year and have people say, well, look at what happened last year. I was like, you mean last year when the one seed in the American League won the World Series? <laughs> like, that was what happened last year. I, re- yeah. I remember them say advancing to the CS. It was it was dramatic. Yes. There um, were a lot of upsets other than that. But there yes. were a lot of upsets other than that. But I think that when you look at this year's you know, playoff field, you have, you know, the reality that the Dodgers just don't really have much of a functional rotation right now. Mm -hmm. Now, are they being met with the Diamondbacks team that had the good fortune of winning the wild card in two and being able to, by virtue of the off days, set it up so that Los Angeles potentially has to face both Merrill Kelly and Zach Allen twice. Yeah, but like mm-hmm. if Clayton Kershaw can get out of the first inning of his start, maybe that doesn't matter. You mm-hmm. know, if that offense, which is very potent, is able to score more runs, that doesn't matter. You know, Philly as a four seed was fighting up until not the very end, but close to the end. And so Atlanta was gifted a game one bullpen game and like they couldn't get it done against ranger suarez like that's a that's a deficiency of an atlanta offense that has been pretty unstoppable for most of the year i don't think that you can rightly look at that and say well like oh philly had too you know too big an advantage because they had to throw their you know best starters in the wild card round against miami Mm -hmm. You could look at it and say, well, this Braves offense is so amazing and they got shut out. It must be rust, right? Like that that hasn't happened to them since, what was it, May? They hadn't been shut out at home, I think, all season. And They hadn't been shut out at home since August of 2022, (laughs) I think. Like it had been a beat, like really had been. Right. So if you were inclined to draw conclusions from single game samples, then you might say, wow, this is the the vaunted Atlanta offense. And wow, they were undone. They were overmatched. They couldn't convert. So therefore, it 
is out of the ordinary and and maybe it's because of the out of the ordinary schedule or amount of rest or something, right? So I get why people would wonder or would bring it up. I think it's a legitimate enough question to ask. And I, I would also guess I was talking about how there must be kind of a cutoff. There must be a point where it goes from being an advantage to not being one and then to being a disadvantage. I would guess that that point takes longer to reach as the season goes on and as you get this deep into right. the season and the year because as they always say at this time of year everyone is banked up everyone is tired so i would think that having a little extra rest in october would be more beneficial than in right. early in the season you know and and yeah, yeah i mean you've been in this routine you've been playing almost every day for months and months at this point but as a lot of people have pointed out like yeah you get the all-star break obviously everyone's off at the all-star break so we can't really use that to compare how teams do but players get a little rest there and you know they sometimes have a nagging injury that sure. will send them to the IL or not even to the IL but they'll just miss some games or you know things will happen there will right. be a weather off day after a regular off day whatever it is like players aren't complete strangers to taking a few days off so I don't know that that would be just like so disruptive to the system you know if we were talking about weeks I mean really long time sure but a few days I, I don't think so but but you know someone saying I think it matters and me saying I don't think it matters is ultimately not that helpful but the study that Ben did which is very similar to a study Joe Sheehan had done last year when this came up they both came to roughly the same conclusion which is that it doesn't seem to be the case on the whole now both of them kind of focused on what happens in the first game back which I I think makes sense is defensible right because it's true that that some of these better teams end up losing the series, but if if it was a rust effect, mm-hmm. then you would expect it to manifest itself most in that in first game. game. Yeah, yeah, right, because once you get that game under your belt, you're back in the swing of things, more or less. And what they found is that the home teams, the better teams, the better rested teams have done quite well, have done maybe even better than you'd expect them to do in the first game. So Ben and Dan Saborski went back in playoff history and found every time that a team had had a layoff of four or more days and their opponent had had a layoff of two or fewer days. And this is skewed toward recent years, but going back as far as I think 1981 was the earliest one of these games and found that the home team, the team with the longer layoff, went 24 and 11 in those 35 games. And based on their records during the regular seasons, you would have expected 19 and 16. And then even if you account for maybe they have the better starters, they lined up their rotation, the other team had to use their top starters, whatever it is, like you wouldn't expect them to do any better than 24 and 11. That's really, really good considering the, the caliber of competition in the playoffs. So... If someone has a suggestion for why this layoff hangover effect would not manifest itself in the first game, but would then rear its head 
after that, I'm I'm all ears. Yeah. I just I can't really come up with a good explanation for that. So when you kind of drill down to the game that that this should have the the most impact on, there doesn't seem to be anything there. It's especially strange when you think about the fact that like most of these teams, and I think we know for sure that three of the four first round buy teams, and I imagine this is true of all of them, they like. It's not like they're like, okay, see you in a week. Bye. Mm -hmm. You know, like they do inter-squad stuff. They scrimmage. They try to like keep these guys fresh and are, you know, I'm sure balancing that against wanting to get the guys who really might have like a nagging something or other the time they need to, to rest and recover. But they're not just like sitting around as Ben, Dan, and I said, well, they're not eating pudding. Like, they're not just <laughs> sitting around eating chocolate pudding for, you know, four days or whatever. They're doing baseball stuff mm -hmm. with the hope of, you know, striking the right balance between rest and staying sort of sharp. And so, again, like, I, I do think it's a reasonable thing to ask. And I think that, you know, given the reasons that exist for why some of the, the series are sequenced the way they are, which seems like it has a lot to do with broadcast considerations right both yeah. um the emergence of this sort of like extra day in the nlds is about wanting to make sure that there aren't like no days with baseball at least that they have scheduled that ends up happening when series don't go full uh you know five or seven but you know they they have additional time built in i think it's a perfectly reasonable question to ask and i think it's a good thing for us to keep an eye on because it is a new format and it's not unprecedented for baseball to make changes like this and then realize like whoops mm -hmm. unintended consequence and one that we can't live with so I think it's perfectly reasonable, you know, to ask. And if you're a fan of one, you know, if you're a Dodgers fan and it like makes you feel a little bit better to mm -hmm. think that it's because there was too long of a layoff and you need that to like process what happened in the first two games of that series. Like, mm -hmm. okay, what? That, like, that's fine. There are, there are way dumber things to, to think <laughs> as a fan. And I've thought most of them. So, you know. <laughs> I think that if that's something that fans want to kind of hang their hat on, like, okay. But it doesn't, at least at this juncture, seem to be something that is particularly well supported by what evidence we do have. And to your point, like, I don't, I haven't heard like a coherent theory of rest that would, <laughs> yeah. you know, would result in, you know, rest being simultaneously good and bad. I mean, like Smoltz was on the broadcast being like, well, it's bad that the Diamondbacks get so much rest because they get to reset their rotation and, you know, that's to their benefit. And that's as much about Gallon and, and Merrill as it is, Merrill Kelly as it is anything else, but they get to reset their rotation. It's bad for the Dodgers because they're going to, and I'm like, John, which is it? Like, what is your understanding of naps? Like, what does <laughs> what this mean? And to your point, like, why would, why would it work out okay sometimes in game one when you would think that that rest would be the most pronounced and then, you know, have a, a less pronounced effect going forward? So I I haven't heard like the th the theory of rest. Someone should write that. You know, little <laughs> theorist brain over here going like, "What do? You, what is your understanding of how this should work?" And then like, we should test it. The other thing is that in this era, teams can face game level velocity, right? right. Like they can train. It, it It's not like a hundred years ago. You know, if you want to practice, if you want to have sort of a simulated game, these teams have high tech pitching machines that can as close to perfectly as possible replicate 
the precise stuff of the pitchers they're going to be facing, right? So it, it's not like if you're not playing in a game, there's no way to get game speed situations. Right. You can do that now. And obviously, you can get whatever other exercise you want or need to. It, it's, again, not like the olden days where players didn't really work out or lift weights or didn't have training facilities, you know? The oldie days. <laughs> yeah, they can just hit the weights. They could do whatever they would normally do. It's never going to be exactly the same as a playoff atmosphere game, obviously, but I feel like it's closer than you could ever come before. So, yeah. And and in the first games, even in this year and last year, the home teams were four and four, right? Even right. though they ended up losing some of those series. So, yeah. And I, I think another thing that people have maybe neglected, I mean, there's just a big benefit to not having to play an extra round, right? Like, even if there were a, a slight ding to your odds just because you're right. getting too much rest, you still don't have to play in the, the toss-up 50-50 coin toss kind of wildcard round. So right. you're still getting a big advantage as a team with a bye, just right. getting to get a bye and skip that right. round and not have to risk elimination there. So there is still a significant advantage in, in yeah. that sense, as there should be, as we want there to be, right. I think. But don't neglect that, right? Just the right. fact that you don't have to put your season on the line in the wild card round, you know, aside from anything about rest, aside from anything about lining up your rotation. That's that's a big boon to you. And really, I, I think a lot of this comes down to just the annual consternation when we switch from regular season to postseason. It's right. a shock to the system. You it know? is. You just, it's, it's inevitable. I, I think we all know this intellectually. I, we we yeah. understand it's different and it's not as telling. I, I think we do. We should. Right. But somehow it seems like we forget that or once it, it actually rolls around and good teams start losing quickly to teams that right. we know or strongly suspect to be inferior based on their regular season performance. And in some cases, win total is not everything, right? Like the, sure. the Rangers' underlying quality as a team was comparable to the Orioles, if not better, based on some metrics, at least, to just name one example. But even though we understand, up oh, playoffs are a crapshoot, everyone knows that's a cliche. And yet, suddenly, teams go down 0-2 and yeah. they start losing. And it's like, well, wait a second, but <laughs> hold on. Right. That team was too good to be gone already. If you want an exercise that says, here is the best team in baseball, well, we have that. It's a 162-game <laughs> regular season, right? Like, yes. that is the exercise where we can say, with some amount of confidence, like, this team, that club, that's the that's the one, man. Like, those are the guys. Mm -hmm. We have decided to have this other thing. And I think that you're right that, like, we we know and like not everybody knows right but like intellectually i think most people understand that once you introduce a three five seven game series into the mix even between teams that on paper have as disparate a quality as say the los angeles dodgers and the diamondbacks because i think that they're like a really you know we're gonna if the d-backs sweep out the <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get, we'll get to, to that, that too. later too. Um, <laughs> but if they bounce the Dodgers in three tomorrow night, we're we're gonna get another round of this discourse, I would imagine. And we know on paper 
the relative strengths and weaknesses of those teams. And I think from a true talent perspective, even having to wade through injuries and all of that, we can say like, which of these clubs is probably better. But like, that's in a lot of ways, not the project of the postseason. The project of the postseason is determining who is able to win a three, five or seven game series. And then, you know, repeat a couple of times. So (laughs) It's always going to be an uneasy thing to hold in our minds simultaneously because we do imbue the World Series with all of this power and meaning and like as well we should because we want that to mean something special to clubs so that they try to win it. And like I want to be careful not to strip away the, you know, the weight of that accomplishment because if we do, I think we end up with worse baseball across the board, both in the post and regular season. But yeah. I do think it's useful to keep in mind, like, these are different exercises. They tell us different things. They take on a similar form. And obviously, like, they are directionally pointed the same way, I think, where it's like winning more is better. But mm-hmm. they are a little bit divorced from one another. And, you know, if we can manage to keep that uneasy situation sort of in mind and and feel a certain amount of comfort with it, I think that a lot of this consternation goes away. Easy for me to say, right? Like, I'm not a Dodgers fan. You know, I'm not a Rays fan. So it's easy for me to say, like, eh, you know. But, (laughs) and so I get it. It matters to those people. And part of it, candidly, Ben, between you and me, (laughs) Like, I'm ready to see some new faces, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm ready to see some new folks. And so I I know that this isn't, you know, going to be true across the board. But, like, I don't know, man. Like, maybe the Dodgers take a a year off of going further than (laughs) than they do in this round. That's okay. They'll be back, you know? (laughs) This isn't it for them. It's not it for Tampa. And, again, like, easy for me to say. Some years off not going further than the the division series in the past two. But But they're always there. Yeah. They're always there, right? And I, I, I acknowledge, again, easy for me to say, not just because I'm not a fan of those teams, but I'm not a player on one of those teams. And if you're a player on one of these clubs, like you only get so many shots. So mm-hmm. I don't want to be dismissive of it, but I, I think that the idea of a CS bracket where we end up with some like, you know, new blood is, is kind of exciting. I think it's mm-hmm. nice. And I think that that's a good thing for the sport too, because you want, you know, if it's always the same, like dynasty type teams, like you can get a little wrote you know and so let's let's uh, mix it up a little bit and i'm not just saying that because if the diamondbacks advance more people i like and want to see will have to come to arizona it's not Mm -hmm. just that it is that a (laughs) little bit but it's not just that you know maybe get some mariners in the mix a little more often yeah (laughs) but 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 I'm not taking the ba- look. Look, you keep trying to make me go back on my word. I see what you're doing. I'm I'm a, a woman of honor. I'm not taking that bait. But yeah, it's nice. Like if we end up with a little bit of a a mixed field in terms of teams that we see a lot of and teams that are on the sort of upswing, I think that that's exciting. So yeah, I think I wrote about this with the Dodgers a few years ago. <laughs> I already wrote about how they were just postseason staples and we just see them every year. And I, I actually thought it was 
it was kind of nice, like in a kind of comfort TV way. Like, you know, you, you turn on a show that's uh, always in reruns or just has a almost infinite number of seasons. And it's just kind of nice to, to have those characters on the screen again. I just kind of think it's nice as someone who's not rooting for or against them in a 12-team playoff field, which has room for new blood and also some old blood. I right. think it's it's nice to have a couple holdovers, you know, a, yeah. a couple teams that are kind of always there so that we have a playoff history with them. We go back yes. with them. Obviously, these Dodgers are much different from the first yeah. Dodgers team to make the playoffs during this run, you know, but but still, like well, you have certain part of the problem <laughs> yeah, in certain cases, uh, some of those characters who are the same and have not changed. But, well, they have changed in, in some ways, but still the same name, still the same face. But, yeah, yeah it's it's nice because you have some continuing storylines and it's like, oh, remember right. when Dave Roberts did that thing years ago? Here he is. Will will that happen again? Or it's the Clayton Kershaw baggage which sometimes can just be a little bit tedious and, and tiresome because we've heard it so many times and we can talk about that again in a minute. But, but you know, they're continuing storylines, which I think is kind of nice. And it reminds you of, of previous games and plot points in yes. those stories. But as long as it's not necessarily like Dodgers Astros in the World Series every year, you know, <laughs> mix things up a little bit. But yeah, I'm with you on, on what you said about the playoffs and the regular season. I remember talking and writing about this last year because, yes, you can have the attitude of this is just a separate tournament. You know, it starts over and you don't have this playoff tournament to decide which are the best teams because that's what the regular season is for. At the same time, I think you have to think that there's some signal and meaning because if this were entirely random and if everyone thought it was random – then I don't know that we would watch. Like, there has to be something at stake. It, it can't just be we won this meaningless thing that told us nothing about the respective qualities of the teams. Right. Like, we, we have to at least convince ourselves that it means something. And that's why right. I, I think a lot of fans will look at it as as meaningful, as telling, like, this was actually the best team, or at least that they stepped up when it mattered the most, and and that's why this is significant, even if it just means we were the best team in October, or we won the most games, which is not always the same as being the best team, but it's not. It's October. It's the playoff stage. We rose to the occasion, and that says something about the character of this team, right? That's a way you can kind of tell yourself that this is significant, and maybe it is, right? <laughs> but right. But you have to tell yourself that it means something because if it were right. all just completely unpredictable and random then what what are the stakes why are we even watching right so i think there has to be a balance has to be a happy medium it's like yes. with with rest where you want some right. amount of rest but not too much rest you want like a goldilocks zone of rest you want the same yeah. thing i think when it comes to favoring the favorites in the playoffs, you want right. to give them some sort of advantage yes. so that you recognize their status and you make it more likely that the better teams win, but not too likely because we right. still want the spontaneity and the randomness or why right. else do this at why all? Why else we, do it? Right. right. <laughs> but yeah. not too much randomness because right. it has to mean something or it has to at least seem like it means something. So 
we give you home field advantage and we give you that buy in that round. And Ken Rosenthal suggested and Ben Clemens endorsed, well, maybe you should reseed after yes. the first round. You know, it wouldn't make a big difference, but it, it would make a little bit of a difference. And it seems like it would make yeah. some sense. But but then when you start getting into, well, you could have the worst team in the regular season start a game down or, you know, like you can have the, the no. better team in the regular season just have to win fewer games to advance and, and some other countries and leagues do sure. that. And I, I get it, but that I think is maybe a little too far for me because it's just, yes. you know, it defeats the purpose. It's, uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm kind of a regular season guy, you know, if, the, if, if no one had ever invented the postseason, I don't know that I would have been the one to invent it. I would just say, well, right. that was, that was a good season <laughs> at the end of September. <laughs> All right. You won. You won the, the season. That's it. You were the best team. <laughs> Okay, well, now it's time for the off season. Looking Yay. forward to next year. <laughs> I, I would, like if we didn't have two different leagues. Right. I, I wonder how long that would have taken to happen because, I mean, it already took a really long time to get anything other than the World Series. And if you right. didn't have an American League and a National League and, you know, the, the precursors to what we think of as the World Series now where you had two different champions and it's like, okay, let's pit the best of this league against the best of that league. Yeah. Nowadays, we don't really have significant uh, differences between leagues. We just right. have the, the traditional naming difference. So if you were to, to restart baseball now with sort of the same conditions but without the history i i wonder obviously you have playoffs and in, in other sports and basically everything so it's a proven formula and you get to put more games on tv and make much right. more money <laughs> so yeah. so probably we would have it but i'm just saying it, it took a long time to get to where we are with the playoffs right. in this current format and a lot of it was like well we had two different league champions so each one was the acknowledged champion of its own league. No one was like, right. well, we got to have playoffs for the National League to figure out which uh, the best team was in the National League. We already know they were the best, but we have this other league. So now we've got to figure out which was the best <laughs> pitted those two leagues against each other. right? And then that sort of led to what we have now, maybe. So, yeah, yeah you, you got to draw the line somewhere when it comes to giving an advantage to the better teams. Yeah, like you don't you want it to be exciting and entertaining. I think that you want it to feel gosh, I'm going to regret putting a specific number on it, Ben, but it's like what is our understanding of of home field advantage at this point? Like your 54% the Jerry Depoto number. <laughs> right. So you want like you want it to be like I don't know, 60 maybe. Like mm -hmm. I don't know. Like you know, you don't want it to be so out for outside the range that it feels like the other team can't be in it. And like, in some ways, I guess it's, it's funny to, to like assume we can achieve that with a generalizable rule, because I mean, just like, again, look what's about to maybe happen to the Dodgers, right? Like they are the better team on paper and they have one and a half starters right now. You know, <laughs> that's a bit of an exaggeration, but not much of one. So Sometimes, like, circumstance just happens, and it happens at inconvenient times when there isn't enough time to recover relative to what you might expect if, you know, you had less severe injury earlier in the season or what have you. So, I don't know. It's just uh, it's a good thing to fret over, and then I hope that that maintenance <laughs> doesn't prevent people from enjoying what we actually are being given because I think that there's a lot that's pretty exciting about the postseason, even when some of the games are pretty understood and well in hand, 
I don't know. It's kind of cool. It's cool to see like an upstart Diamondbacks team. It's imagine telling someone how that Braves Phillies game was going to end. And then even if you told them and they, you, you like articulated it in a way where they could visualize it in their mind. If they went and watched it, they would still go, oh, my God, like that was yeah. so incredible. And it, and it was amazing. Like the end of that game was so wild and so cool. So, I mean, again, not if you're a Phillies fan, but but all of that to say, like, let's keep our eyes on this very specific prize, which comes with terms and conditions about uh, what it says about the regular season. So about Clayton Kershaw, <laughs> mm. who looked like he could have used maybe months of rest, not just a few days. I think the more rest, the better, possibly for Clayton Kershaw at this point. But it's funny, I kind of thought we were done with Clayton Kershaw playoff discussions, right? Because seemed like he had gotten that monkey off his back when yeah. the Dodgers finally won a World Series. He pitched well in that World Series. Yeah. The Dodgers won both of his starts. I know it was 2020, but the playoffs were just as, as legitimate, just as full-featured as any year. And the Dodgers were so great that year. It's not like there was any doubt that they were going to make the playoffs over a full season. Right. So he pitched better, and it seemed like, okay, he finally had his year, and he got his ring, and that's that. And then this start happened. The yeah. worst start of his career, certainly the shortest start of his career— one of the worst playoff starts of all time, Ever, maybe yeah. the worst. I mean, he's the, the first pitcher in postseason history to allow five or more runs before recording an out. He got one out, and he had never failed to go at least an inning before in his career. So I think everyone was aware Clayton Kershaw is not at his best right, right. now. But And so that's the thing, <laughs> watching this always feels like there's some sort of uh, extenuating circumstance yeah. or, you know, people are protesting too much, but often it's like, no, but but he had this thing happen, yeah. you know, we're always making some excuse for him. And sometimes it's a legitimate one, except after 194 innings, it's hard to excuse all of that. It's just that the current Clayton Kershaw pretty clearly seems to be pitching through injury or some some physical yeah. i mean you know his shoulder right like i i know he said something to the effect of he's okay yeah. right but like you know he's not that. okay no. <laughs> no i don't think he's okay this, this feels like a situation where the day after the dodgers get eliminated or the playoffs yeah. end we we find out yeah more. or maybe we don't because he tends not to share a ton about injuries but you know there's something going on there like dave roberts has said previously that the shoulder was not completely right he hasn't gone more than five innings in a start since right. june which was before he went on the il Every start after he came back from the IL in August was five innings or shorter. Now, he did have a 2.23 ERA right. somehow over that span of eight starts with a 5.4 FIP. Yeah, I was just about to say the peripherals were less generous. Yeah, and and the stuff, even by the, the latter day, still highly effective, but much more soft-tossing yeah. Clayton Kershaw standards. Yeah. So he was not throwing great stuff up there and the Diamondbacks were just completely crushing it. It's just he was yeah. not fooling anyone at all. Yeah, it went Marte double, Carroll single, Fam single, Walker double, Moreno home run, Gurriel ground out, 
Alec Thomas walk, which honestly was as as concerning to me as any. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Longoria double, and then Perdomo struck out, and Marte grounded out to first. It was, yeah. and by the time the two, as you noted, the two final outs came, like Emmett Sheehan was already in the game. Mm-hmm. Kershaw was done after the Longoria double. So, and then like the broadcast camera just insists on lingering on him in the dugout and. <laughs> I understand, like, you know, the discourse demands its answer, I guess, but I don't know. We could, you can show him the one time and then you can be done, you know, and maybe you can stop talking about it after a while, Bob. (laughs) Just like an insistence on talking about it in just the most gut-wrenching terms possible. So it was, it was pretty bad, you know, it was pretty, pretty bad. Pretty Pretty tough to watch, not for Diamondbacks fans, I'm sure, but <laughs> most people, I think, generally like and respect Clayton Kershaw, yeah. or at least have derived a lot of enjoyment from his career yeah. and uh, don't wish him ill. And, you know, they might root against the Dodgers at this point just because the Dodgers are always in the playoffs, but. There aren't that many people, probably, who are taking pleasure and delighting in Clayton Kershaw's playoff failures. And there are a lot of people who I think kind of defend him and and maybe fairly defend him many times, maybe bend over backwards to defend him at times, too. Like, Yeah, there have been times, and and we've been talking about Kershaw and playoff Kershaw for much of the existence of this podcast. So the story and the stats have evolved over the years. And so you go back some years, I think there is a sense of, I mean, A, there's always sort of the the stat head saber metric resistance to labeling someone a, a choker or attributing clutchness or or the lack thereof to true talent and and skill as opposed to just, you know, it happens. And so I think it's always been hard for me to square the idea that Clayton Kershaw, maybe the best pitcher of his generation, just absolute ace in the regular season, cannot handle the pressure in October. Like that just, it doesn't, he's such a driven, determined guy. Like uh, teammates love him and count on him. Like it just, it doesn't really make sense to me that, that he would just choke in the playoffs. And so I've always wondered also how it could be true that he could sometimes pitch well and, and then mostly not. It's like, Okay, if you have a, a mental block or you're just unclutch or whatever it is, I mean, you know, put me out there. Yeah, we'd probably be flop sweating. And <laughs> I mean, we would, we'd, I would throw. we'd yeah, uh, now I would over myself. I wouldn't be necessarily much more likely to throw up in a playoff start than in a regular season start. They would no, no, both. No, I throw, I, to yeah. be clear, I would throw up both times. Like, yeah, I right. would just There's, be like, Bleh. Which is sort of what I'm getting at. It's like the level of pressure. I know, well, I haven't personally experienced it. You often hear players, ex-players, broadcasters talk about how it's a different game and all of that. And sure. I'm sure it feels like that. And I, I'm sure there's something to it. I mean, Study after study seems to show that postseason experience doesn't really improve your performance in the postseason. But yeah, I'm sure it feels a little bit different. But how different does it feel? It's a difference of degree, I think. Mm -hmm. 
but like by the time you get to that point, you know, so many games have been the biggest game of your life by that point. I mean, yeah. probably when you were in Little League, you know, the championship game felt like the World Series to you. Or if you were in the high school finals or championship or college or the, you know, every step of the way. Like you, you feel, I mean, you know, I used to get as, as nervous about uh, taking a test in third grade or something as I do about anything now. It's just, it's kind of, it's relative, you know, like things sure. seem very important depending on the stage of, of life that you're in. And so these guys have been so tested by the time they get to making a playoff start they've already been playing just with incredible pressure and scrutiny and the stands packed, you know, Clayton Kershaw, he's been through this so, so many times at this point. And so I could understand if, if someone was completely terrible every time and just was like throwing the ball all over the park and it was just when he's in the regular season, he's great. Every single time he's been in the playoffs, he's been bad. I guess I could understand that. I would feel bad for, for the person, mm -hmm. but I could at least entertain the notion that he has an inability to perform at this at this time of year. But when he, you've had so many good memories and moments, right. then that suggests that it's not that you're incapable of doing it. So I, I guess, you know, all these things, it's like balanced on a knife's edge. And so you're a little right. more nervous than usual. That's all it takes maybe to make you worse. But Look, there's no denying anymore that he has been worse. It's yeah. like I almost hesitate to lump this start and this version of Clayton Kershaw yeah. in with all the others because it's like this is clearly not yeah, Kershaw. This is yeah, yeah, it's not even post-peak Kershaw. This is right. Kershaw who's pitching through something. Yeah, he just seems like he's obviously hurt. It does seem like that, yeah. And and there have been a number of times when once the playoffs roll around, he's had something like that, whether right. it's fatigue or the back is acting up. And so sure. in the past, it's kind of been like, well, the Dodgers really needed him to take the ball here right. or, you know, his bullpen didn't support him or the, the rest of the staff is shorthanded, which is certainly the case right now. You know, the the bad bullpen support or his manager left him out there too long. It was thing after thing after thing. And and it often seemed to be true. And yet, even accounting for all of that, like, clearly, there's just no denying at this point that he has been far, far less effective in the yeah. playoffs over almost a full season sample. So we can't completely write that off. I guess the question is just like, what do we do with that? What, what do we... How does that affect our perception of the career of Clayton Kershaw? I don't know that it like changes things for me that much. I think that when you're trying to understand his career in all its fullness, you know, I'd need to like go back and kind of remind myself of which of the years were the ones where like he was a little bit dinged up and he pitched anyway, and which were mm -hmm. the years where he was like really young. <laughs> like yeah. the other thing, like some of these, he was like quite young. And then like, you know, which were the years where he maybe just didn't have it or it was left in too long or like the bullpen goofed up yeah. or whatever. Like I'd have to go back through and, and do that. But I think that the benefit of trying to understand players' careers in their totality is that it allows us to say the results on the field in these particular games of the postseason, some of them are good. You know, some of them are good. Some of them are fine. Some of them mm -hmm. are really bad. Yeah. Here are the results. And then, like, you think about the context. Like, 
did game one of this DS go the way that he or the Dodgers wanted? No, but like, I'm going to remember that he is almost certainly hurt and he pitched anyway. And there's something admirable in that. You know, there have been times where like, they've just really needed him down the stretch to like, do what they wanted to as a team to secure the positioning they wanted in the postseason to win the division. And he did it. He was their guy who they turned to and who like really helped them stabilize their rotation at times. And if that means that he was more fatigued in the postseason than he might otherwise have been, like that's important context. I think that Mm -hmm. you can understand why it's happened And that doesn't have to explain anything away. It just helps you to to get what's going on with this guy in much the same way that, like, understanding how his fastball moves helps you understand what's going on with him, right? Mm -hmm. To return to our earlier conversation, because there is still a contingent of baseball fans who view sort of postseason performance as this special, incredible thing, and it can, you know, be defining for a guy's career. I think part of why you end up with this, like, defensiveness on the part of, it's not just Dodgers fans, like Clayton Kershaw fans, is that there's an anxiety that people aren't going to understand. No, like, you got to know what it was like to watch this guy, right? Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of our you know, consternation about him isn't about him at all, right? It's about how watching him made us feel and the idea that, like, his postseason performance would obscure all of that for many, many more games than he has pitched in the playoffs is, like, very threatening to our understanding of baseball because there have been Mm -hmm. so, you know, like, there are a lot of guys who are great starting pitchers, but the combination of like how often they're used and whatnot means that like when we look back on this generation of starters, there aren't going to be so many guys where we're like, that guy's an obvious Hall of Famer, that guy's an obvious Hall of Famer, that Mm -hmm. guy's an obvious Hall of Famer. And Kershaw is one of those guys. And so I think we like, it feels very threatening to our, our memory of this era of baseball for people to be like, well, but he kind of sucks in the postseason. And it's like, no, he doesn't. He's the best. He's going to Hall of Fame. And it's like, well, maybe all of that's true at the same time. And the people who are trying to use the postseason to invalidate his resume writ large are being very silly. And the people who are maybe over-defending him and trying to be like, well, no, no, actually, it's fine. It's like, well, okay, but like, Let's be real, though, because like yeah. some of it hasn't been good, and no. that's okay. He's <laughs> yeah. a Hall of Famer. He's incredible. Like We are all so lucky to have gotten to watch this guy's career, right? So I think that that's a, a big, I think that's a big, big part of it. That's a big mm-hmm. part of it for any of this. This is part of why we do care about October, because the rest of the year, we are watching, I mean, not you and I and people who are like writing about baseball for a living, but for most fans, like... They're watching their team and then like some of the national games probably. And there are going to be people who are like really into baseball and they're watching a bunch of other stuff. But like on average, that's what it is. And then you get to October and you get to be like, that's my dude. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you about my guy, right? Like 
one of these D-backs games, they were like, and now the national stage gets to meet Corbin Carroll or something like that. And I, at first I went like, what are you talking about? Like, this guy's going to be the NL Rookie of the Year. But then I was like, how many people are watching Diamondbacks games? Like, mm-hmm. that's actually not a, an out-of-pocket thing to say. Like, I bet a lot of people are watching Corbin Carroll play m- baseball in a meaningful sample that wasn't the All-Star game for the first time. Like, that's probably yeah. totally true. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like when we all come together and so it feels like it means so much and so how dare you say the Clinton Grinch on the Pismatic Ground? Like, <laughs> I get it. I really do. And and I, as I so often am, as a person who was able to make all of those noises and appreciates how wild it is for me to be the person delivering this piece of advice, would just invite all of us to, like, chill a little bit. We could all just <laughs> chill a little bit because he's great. Like, there's just no question about that. There's, there's nothing he's done in the postseason that invalidates the the sort of luster of his career in its totality but this is you know this is a weak spot in the resume and not mm-hmm. all of it but like some of his, yeah but he has a 162 era in the postseason <laughs> right now a thing that i was able to find very easily on our new playoff <laughs> later boards i was ding, just gonna ding, ding. shout those out i'm so so overjoyed that fan <laughs> now has a postseason leaderboard it's so we've talked about this in the past it's, it's so hard to find it's playoff so stats it's Not like anymore. Because we we keep them cloistered, we've decided that regular right. season and, and playoffs are separate things statistically, which I I get. I, yeah. I think it's it's okay to keep them separated because some guys don't play in the postseason or don't play as much. But still, it's important baseball. We have to be right. able to look up what happened, and it's often right. very difficult to. So very hard. the fact that Fabgrass now has postseason sets. Oh my gosh, what I know. what a wonderful gift! <laughs> so, Good job, Sean and Appleman. And I immediately used it to look up how bad Clayton Kershaw has been oh. in the playoffs. But yeah, so I was talking to Rob Nyer on his podcast this week, and and I said sort of the same thing. I was like, well, when you write his baseball obit, you know, you write his career summary when he retires, it's not in the first paragraph. It's it's somewhere in the piece, probably at this point, right? Like it deserves to be mentioned that he had postseason struggles, but but it's not at the top of the piece it's not close to the top of the piece right, right? you're you're going to write about his regular season excellence and you're going to write about his Cy Youngs and the Dodgers success during his tenure and the fact that he won a world series and and then yeah maybe you know it was was certainly a part of the Clayton Kershaw experience. While we were all watching and appreciating Clayton Kershaw during his career, we were also marveling and hand-wringing and just wondering what the yeah. heck was going on with his postseason performance. So I think it should be mentioned and documented, but it also shouldn't overshadow yeah. all of the incredible things he's done. You know, just looking at the stats using the Fancraft's playoff leaderboard, you can see And I think I remember citing a stat like this years ago, but it's still true. Like, he does have the biggest gap between regular season and postseason ERA of anyone with, let's say, 75 innings. And so that that gives us 55 pitchers. And his gap is uh, between 2.48 in the regular season and 4.49 in the postseason. That's a gap of two runs, 2.01. That's the biggest by a lot, (laughs) by really just a lot. Like David Price is at 1.3. 
And if you use FIP, which we can do, playoff FIP. Oh my gosh, it's so nice to be able to look up playoff FIP. But he's got a 3.81 playoff FIP. Now that is significantly lower than his playoff ERA, which would suggest, again, maybe a little unlucky, maybe a little bad bullpen support. But even the FIP difference of 0.99 is the greatest among players with 75 or more innings pitched. So it is anomalous. And yep. and I think, you know, he has a, a negative career postseason WPA, win probability added, and he's pitched a whole lot of innings. And, and yeah. so do a couple other guys who pitched a whole lot of playoff innings, Tom Glavin and Greg Maddox. But to have a negative WPA after all these yeah. playoff innings, it's, it's, it's not ideal. And... No. You know, he has the seventh most playoff innings ever as we speak. And I think that's another thing is that in the past we recoil when it comes to playoff performance because small sample, small sample. Right. Nowadays, when you have expanded playoffs and more teams being in the playoffs and then also some teams like the Dodgers being in those playoffs every year, you get guys who are accruing you know, right. a sample with some degree of, of significance yeah. there. I mean, we're talking about a full season, essentially, of, yeah. of, of pitching. So that's that's not nothing. And that has to be acknowledged. But yep. I just, I resist, I, I guess I always resist or, or require extraordinary evidence to believe the claim that it's like a psychological issue as opposed yeah. to, to other things that are going on. Like you could say maybe he's not a good playoff pitcher because physically he breaks down by this right. time of year, right? And, right? and that that could be still a knock against him, a legitimate thing. Like, hey, if you're the ace, you know, you got to be still ready to go in October. Right. And at least late in his career, he often hasn't. You know, he's, right. he breaks down. He's been a bit more fragile. So, so that's a legitimate knock you could have against him without attributing it to some kind of uh, choker nature, yeah. right? Because there are just there are so many cases of players who've gotten that label and then they shed it because you know it even in not terribly distant years i mean like barry bonds or right. a rod to name a couple players who aren't super popular anyway but you know david price i i just mentioned i mean sure so many guys who struggled in the playoffs and then all of a sudden they stopped struggling right. And, you know, did they learn to deal with whatever mental block they were encountering? Maybe, maybe that was it. Or maybe they just needed to play some more games and ultimately their talent would show out. Well, and I think this is part of why, even though we've really struggled and I imagine we'll continue to struggle to put like a specific, you know, value metric on it. Like, I think this is part of why people are so keen to understand sort of the sports psychology piece of it, because I agree with you. Like, I don't know Clayton Kershaw. I don't know the heart or the mind of the man, right? But I, it, it would surprise me based on just how he, like, comports himself in the postseason if it was a mental block kind of a thing. It doesn't account for, as you mentioned, like, the times when he has been able to pitch sometimes quite well in October. But I don't want to downplay to the point of it being completely meaningless the idea of there being guys who have just like a particular heartbeat, if you want to call it that, or a mental process by which they are able to sort of stay within themselves, which is a phrase that I think is weird, but that's a conversation for a different day, but like are able to sort of, you know, approach 
those games with the certainly the seriousness that they demand, but don't view them as requiring a higher, de- a greater degree of seriousness than than other games, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to struggle to be able to put it precisely because a lot of these guys who we think of. You know, I'm thinking of this in part because I earlier today, part of why we are recording when we are is that, you know, I went to the media availability at Chase and, you know, you had a room full of people trying to get Corbin Carroll to articulate why he seems so unfazed by all of this. Right. And even he wasn't quite able to, like, say for himself what it what it is more than just like having a routine and sticking to his routine and being able to kind of focus and having that be helpful. And, you know, maybe he would have been more expansive if he hadn't been in a room full of people, many of whom he'd never met before. But like, even the guys who we think of as being able to do that struggle to articulate exactly how. Mm -hmm. And so like, how are we supposed to know what about what they're doing matters? Like they can't even tell us. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's not nothing, but it's like, I don't want to attribute, I don't know. It just feels very like the armchair diagnosing, you know, it's not, it's, I I just think it's like, it's inappropriate for baseball players or serial killers. Like we shouldn't do it for either. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Let's uh, talk about a couple of series quickly and and some notable games and performances here. And by the way, I meant to mention when we started with our, our conversation about playoff meaning and randomness and everything, it's unavoidable that the bigger you make the playoff field, the harder it's going to be for the better teams to win. Right. No matter what yes. you do, you can you can yes. put in any measures you want to, yep. to favor them. The higher the number of teams in the playoffs, all else being equal, it's going to be harder for the best team to win out. And obviously MLB has embraced that and... I think a lot of people have embraced that, and so that just it comes with the territory. So we yep. just gotta gotta get used to it. It would be kind of moving almost at cross purposes to say let's uh, let all of them in, but also we want the better teams to win. Right. It's just it's yeah. you can't really have it both ways, or you it's cannot. extremely difficult to. So speaking of that, so let me tell you about another downside of making predictions, which you know I I tend not to do. I eschew predictions. Mostly because I just – I don't think I'm especially good at them. I don't think I have any special soothsaying ability. And so I had to make a, a prediction for the Ringer entrance survey for the Division Series. One of the questions was, you know, give us a bold prediction for the Division Series. So my prediction, which I arrived at after not a whole lot of deliberation, was Trey Turner will get caught stealing, which, of Mm. course, did not happen this season. He set a record. He stole 30 bases. He didn't get caught. I'm not saying that was super bold. One of my colleagues made fun of me for that not being bold enough. But I thought, hey, okay, I'm at least predicting something that hasn't happened this season. So in that sense, I'm going out on a little bit of a limb here. My first thought, the first thing that I thought about predicting was that the Braves would get shut out in a game in the division series. And then I looked and I I saw, well, they did get shut out a couple times this regular season. So that really doesn't seem bold enough. I I hadn't realized that they hadn't gotten shut out at home and that they would have home field advantage, which might have made it a little bit bolder. But I thought, okay, I'm going to predict the thing that hasn't happened at all this postseason as opposed to the thing that has happened at least a couple times. And hey, you've got good Phillies pitching and uh, who knows, it it wouldn't be the weirdest thing ever. But then... As I'm watching game one and the Braves are are getting shut out, the 
insidious thing about predictions is that once you make them, you can't help rooting for them right. to come true, at, right. at least if you're making a, a public prediction that right. other people see, or even if it's just in the group chat, you know, as, as long as it's not something you're saying to yourself, then there's like a tiny bit of, of reputation at stake. Sure. And so here I am watching this fun game. The Braves are getting shut out. It's uh, surprising. The Phillies are making fantastic defensive plays mm-hmm. to preserve the shutout, like that incredible Trey Turner double play that he started, yeah. right? And I find myself, someone with no rooting interest in this series, rooting for the Braves to score. Not not because I want the Braves to win, but because I don't want to be kicking myself for not right. predicting that there would be a shutout, which is so silly because it's not like this was going to be some like career-making prediction for me. Like, oh my gosh, Ben predicted that they would get shut out right. and then they got shut out. Nostradamus over here, like give this guy a book deal to talk about this prediction or whatever. Like it, it, people probably wouldn't have noticed. Maybe I would have gotten one tweet, like you nailed that one or something. But that's that's about it. And yet, because I almost made this prediction, I was rooting for the Braves to score so that I would not be kicking myself for not predicting <laughs> that they and then and then Trey Turner attempted a steal and I kind of wanted him to get caught because yeah. I was like, well, if I'm if I'm going to blow the one that I almost predicted, then I want to get the one that I did predict right. It's just it's so I don't and I don't want to be thinking that way. I don't right. want to be thinking about like my main rooting interest here no. is that I want my prediction to look smart in retrospect. Right. It's kind of like when people sometimes fantasy players will say that like oh, yeah, this, yeah. this interferes with my fandom because now I'm I'm rooting for my fantasy players against my own team that I root for in real life, right? So that's just another reason why I don't like to make predictions because I want to be appreciating the game on its own merits and not how it relates to me and how it makes me look. But it was surprising, obviously, that the Braves were shut out in that game. And then they were no hit for several innings into game two. So... You know, small sample, weirdness, uh, rust, long layoff, or just credit to the Phillies pitching. But until that amazing, incredible, exciting comeback in Game 2... It looked like the the big factor, which that was the impulse behind my almost prediction was like, everyone's writing about how this is the best offense ever, but it's still the playoffs and we're talking about a very few games here. So even the best offense could be bad, at least in a given game. And that that happens. I mean, it it does happen on occasion. And it looked like they were going to go down very quietly until, until, I guess we can say, well, I, I was going to say until the most controversial managerial move of the playoffs thus far. And I guess that's true. But Is it? also, uh, maybe. But I don't know. But really, until the Braves started hitting is the important right. thing. And, yeah. and Travis Darno hit a home run and Austin Riley hit a home run. And then Austin Riley and Michael Harris II made excellent plays oh on God. just so an cool. a- absolutely riveting oh. final play of that game, yeah. too. <laughs> where Bryce My Harper God. gets doubled off on a ball yeah. at the wall. Like, it's just super exciting late-inning comeback from being down for nothing and, yeah. and looking like they were about to be on the brink. So I 
am of the mind that, and I know that like Russell Carlson, for instance, has put math to this sentiment with a precision that I'm going to fail to. But like, you know, I think we know that even maybe in, in this year where the rules have shifted such to favor base running that like teams can be a little overly conservative with their base running decisions. And I tend to be of the mind that like you should make people make plays. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there are times when you don't want you to plan and then you're, boy, do you feel like a dummy? Mm-hmm. But I think that there are more opportunities to just like try to get a guy to do a great thing. And teams don't always take full advantage of that. And I don't know what the consensus is on Bryce Harper's base running in that moment because I'm trying to be on Twitter or X or whatever the hell less. But like, I can't fault the guy for going because if Harris doesn't make that play, like he scores from first and then it's a tie game. But boy, they really did get him, you know, and it, but it took that. It took that. Like, it took mm-hmm. that, Ben. It took that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I wouldn't call it a, a toot plan. He no. was definitely thrown out on base. But he but was no nincompoop. No, no, no. no I, I don't think it was a, a good play. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of, you know, in hindsight, it wasn't sure. good. <laughs> but but even so, I, I think it was maybe a little over-aggressive because, yeah. you know, it, he could have stopped it second just to see which way it went. Like, if it had dropped, he would have gotten at least a third, and then there was, what, one out at the time? Like, you, you would have had right. more cracks at it. So, mm. I mean, probably he would have scored if it had dropped and he was at second base. So he didn't really have to keep going. I think he even said that he probably shouldn't have gone beyond second. But it was a great play by Harris. I think it was a 45% catch probability, and that's without considering the pressure of the moment or the fact that he was right at the wall. It was, in a way, an unprecedented play. The first time a postseason game ended on a double play involving an outfielder. The first postseason 8-5-3 double play. So I'm sure Harper was smelling that tying run, maybe got a little bit caught up in the moment. Part of it was less a mental error than and a physical error of he just sort of slipped like when he, he did slip a little bit yeah yeah when he turned to go back they slip. barely yeah they barely got him they barely got him and and if he hadn't slipped which was a result of his momentum being headed toward third and then he had right. to turn on a dime and go back and, right. and he just you know he he had to like gather himself and that was probably the difference there so it it could have worked out okay I yeah. think you know given the situation I think it was maybe a little bit over aggressive just okay. given the the cost of getting thrown out there <laughs> versus you know it's like the break even point the, I know all of this is like why why teams are maybe too conservative and certainly yeah. less exciting when it comes yes. to these plays but yes. I, I don't think Bryce Harper among his many talents I don't think he's a good base runner he's not slow no. He's he's above average sprint speed and and really hasn't lost a step sprint speed wise since mm-hmm. you know the beginning of the Statcast era he has well, sort of the his same arm is sprint the speed thing that keeps getting dinged up Ben so, <laughs> yeah, yeah right that's not your you don't run with your arms I mean you do kind of run with your arms but you don't sort run of, yeah. on them mm-hmm. but you know? but he he has been <laughs> <laughs> below average by Fangraphs base running metric yes. five seasons in a row and yes, you know it's, over it's the been, the past yes yeah. yeah, so it's it's not a strength uh, he has many other strengths and no. I would say maybe he's yeah. a little over exuberant at times but I'm not sorry he did it because I'm not a Phillies fan and it was extremely exciting in the moment. (laughs) I think it was great. And I mean, I don't really have um, a horse in the race either. 
I feel like um, I yeah, I prefer horse in the race to skin in the game. You know, mm. I think that mm-hmm. that's my preference because yeah. it's not like a shirts and skin thing, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, it's like a it's weird. It's probably weird. You know, you hear mm-hmm. stuff and you're like, that's probably weird. That's probably bad. So <laughs> horse in the race. I mean, I know that sometimes the horses they don't have a great time either. So what what are we gonna do? I thought it was great. I thought that it took a hell of a play. I thought it it took two hell of a plays. And uh, I, I, I had, it was fine. Like, don't fall down. You know, that's my, that's my note <laughs> to Bryce. But otherwise I was like, nah, I like it. That's great. Yeah. Let's go. So the, the earlier decision was Rob Thompson, Philly's manager, who was quite aggressive last postseason when it came to pulling his pitchers. Yes. He let Zach Wheeler start the seventh. Yes. And. Didn't have a high pitch count. What was it, 85 or something? But it was third time through the order. It was kind of textbook. You know, on the one hand, he's one of the best pitchers in baseball. On the other hand, it's uh, third time through the order, and it's a really good lineup, and you don't want to let them get back in the game. And as good as Wheeler is, he does have a significant times through the order penalty. And at least based on projections and all of that, you would think that the options that the Phillies had in that pen would have been better than Wheeler at that point. So he came in and he gave up a single and then got a strikeout and then gave up the home run. Yep. And maybe that makes the difference, that lets the Braves back in the game, that begins their comeback. And so a lot of people have been criticizing Thompson for making kind of that classical postseason managerial mistake of trusting your starter too long. Even though he's an ace, even though he was cruising, mm-hmm. he'd gotten a little bit of trouble the previous inning, but but nothing super serious. And again, you cited Russell Carlton. Russell Carlton has uh, done the research on this too, and and Ben Clemens ran down all the considerations here. And and yeah, I would think just uh, I probably would would have pulled him there, or think that he should have pulled him there. Partly because this is a different Phillies pen than it was last right. year. And there are just there are more options, right? And right. also given the off days, there was an off day before this game right. and there was an off day after the game. And because of the off days and because of the, the depth of options in that Phillies pen, I think you got to make the move here. I, there are other considerations, but yeah, I would say that was probably leaving him in a little too long. Did that make the difference? Uh, who knows? If a fresh yeah. pitcher had come in, maybe the same thing would have happened. Maybe worse would have happened. We never know. But just based purely on on win expectancy, I'd say probably not the best move. I... It felt close to me. I would have understood if he had pulled him to start the inning. I was kind of okay with him going out there. I maybe would have been like, hey, you just gave up a single. That's Mm -hmm. good, bud. Like, let's be done now. Maybe that's was the sort of pivot point for me. But, you know, I think the point that Ben made in the piece, which is the right one, is that, like, it all comes down to how... These guys execute, right? And you want the process to be good. I think that, you know, when we think about the, like, the Burrios decision to me is still a more controversial one. Yeah. Where it felt like they were locked into an overly fixed process, right? It wasn't flexible enough. And, you know, it's funny because, like, Thompson, I keep wanting to call him Rob Thomas. Yes, I've had Even that still, too. Even still, you know, <laughs> been, been around a while, been the manager for a, a beat here, you know. I yep. still, every time in copy, I'm like, that's not his name. And then I'm like, yeah, it is. It's his name. His name is Rob Thompson, not Rob Thomas. 
anyway, it's funny that I'm saying like, oh, the the process here for like the Blue Jays was insufficiently flexible and was overly rigid and like maybe it wasn't with Philly, which is funny when you think about like how Ranger Suarez was managed in that first game and how, you know, it's clear that they had like a very specific scenario in mind for pulling him and it just happened to come later in the game than they were expecting because he was being so efficient. And so, you know, maybe I'm drawing a distinction that doesn't really exist here, but it didn't feel as rigid. And I think that you want to have a general idea of what you're going to do and you want to know sort of what are the criteria we're going to use to evaluate when to pull a guy because, you know, he was doing so well. And then you're like, well, look, that ball's getting middle middle a little more than it had at any other point in, in his start. And obviously some of them were middle middle in a way that ended up being really damaging to the Phillies. But I don't know. I, that one didn't strike me as like, wow, we got to come in hot with takes. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know if I'm sufficiently takey to host a podcast, but I'm like, <laughs> you might need to find somebody else. Yeah, sports podcast especially. But as Joshi had noted, the Phillies seemed to have a plan to go after the Braves with high-speed fastballs. It's not that the Braves were bad against high-speed fastballs this season. They were just merely one of the best-hitting teams against them, as opposed to being leaps and bounds better than every other team against slower pitches. And that worked for them in Game 1. In Game 2, those big homers came on an 82-mile-per-hour sweeper and an 89-mile-per-hour slider, which is not just who was in the game, but also what they chose to throw. And as Ben pointed out, there is the consideration of reliever familiarity, right. even if you have the options and it's it's not a concern about rest and fatigue so much. There has been a study, a Cameron Grove, former Effectively Wild guest, prompted by a discussion on Effectively Wild with him, yep. has looked into that and, and did find that there does seem to be a familiarity effect, a, a penalty that happens when relievers face a team a number of times within a short span. So... Yeah, you got to give some consideration maybe to that and not giving guys too many looks at, at your relievers. But even so, I, I think I would have gone the other direction. But again, so many of these decisions that get hung on the manager, or at least partly, it's it's hard to do that, at least statistically speaking. Like a, on the one hand, yeah, you know, butterfly flaps, you leave Wheeler in, things happen that way. If he had made a different decision, probably it would have had a different outcome, could have had a worse outcome, who knows, but you know, it just, usually it's based on what you know at the time, at least, right. just sort of a, a small difference either way, and you just hope it, it works out for you. <laughs> ben, mm-hmm. Ben, are you satisfied with our treatment of this subject? Because I have a little game for us to play. Sure, go ahead. But only if you're done. I'm done with that series, yeah. Okay, have you, don't look. Don't look. Have okay. you seen the score of the um, Orioles Rangers yes. game? Um, yes, I have. Well, then, Sorry. It's, then, I can't, then we can't play my little game. I, well, so much for the game. It's it's not a fun game for the Orioles so far. But no. but yes, I'm I'm a responsible baseball media member. I'm I'm second screening here. I'm keeping right. an eye I'm on it because gonna... we are. Yeah, sorry that you can't quiz me. But uh, we are... I was gonna have you guess. <laughs> I was gonna have you guess the score. Yeah, it's <sighs> it's six nothing Rangers as we speak. We are recording. Bye. During yeah. the second of the ALDS it's Games all my 3. Fault, so. Yeah, so, yeah. okay, look, we, we talked <laughs> we talked mostly about Kershaw when we talked about Dodgers, Diamondbacks, and Corbin Carroll. I guess the only other thing to say about that series, Dodgers down 0-2, A, Bobby Miller wasn't much better or longer lasting than Clayton Kershaw was, <sighs> which was, was a bad. disappointment and surprise. And yeah. so... 
again, testament to the Diamondbacks for for making the most of their opportunities. But man, yeah, the, the, and the Dodgers bullpen has stepped up, right? Yeah. I mean, we we knew that. Good. Dodgers pen good, Dodgers rotation bad. We just yeah. maybe didn't know this bad. Yeah. So that has put them in a hole, but the bullpen has kept it close enough that they had a shot, at least, you know, in the second game, certainly, yeah. as good as Gallon was. But the bats haven't held up their end mm-hmm. of the bargain either. And this is this is kind of an ongoing thing with the Dodgers in the division series where they also have not been clutch. It's not just Clayton Kershaw. Right. They they have not hit well when they've needed to. I mean, yep. runners in scoring position, high leverage moments, they're just not converting. They're just not getting those hits. And again, do I think that means something about the character of this team? Uh, no, probably not. It's a really good offense. And yeah. uh, if you played many more games, I'm sure they would outscore the Diamondbacks. But yeah. these are the only games that matter. And uh, thus far, at least, they have not gotten the hits that they needed. No, they sure have not. And the Diamondbacks have gotten some really great production out of their bats and even Mm -hmm. some of the bats that have been like a little more (sighs) prone to swoons have had had their moments. So, yeah, they're up against it. Now, if you're a Dodgers fan and you're like, please say something nice, um, you know, I guess the the bullpen was good. (laughs) Yeah, the bullpen has been really good. But say something um optimistic say something mm. hopeful give us yeah. give us a little something to 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 hold on to as we go into game three tomorrow and i guess the first thing that i would probably say would be well you don't have to deal with merrill kelly or zach allen again mm-hmm. yet <laughs> and you know fought has been vulnerable at times his you know he's got sent down to the minors twice this year and it was for a reason now he's been better of late he wasn't great against milwaukee so how do you balance those things against one another the D-backs bullpen remains vulnerable, even though that they've had, you know, a pretty good showing so far themselves. And uh, you do have, like, literally Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman. So mm-hmm. presumably that's useful and other good hitters besides. So I don't think that it's like a far gone conclusion that they're going home after Wednesday, but they're up against it. If you're a fan of one of the teams that might face the Diamondbacks, you're very excited because they don't, they're not going to get to use Kelly and Gallon quite so often in the, <laughs> right. in the CS, mm-hmm. just by virtue of how the off days are going to fall out. So there's that, but it's looking kind of grim. Mm-hmm. Um, it's looking a little dire, but it's like you, you basically, now you have a, you could think of it as having a three game series, but if you mm-hmm. lose one of those games, you're done. So like, you know, <laughs> like it's, a, it's kind of a grim, yeah. it's a grim, it's a grim situation. Yeah. They they don't want to get bounced for a second consecutive year in the division series yeah. to a second place NL West team, <laughs> but but they're facing that prospect and, yeah. and we'll return to it. I do, I don't love that that division rivals face themselves face each other in the division series now. I mean, I know it's it's more aptly named that they do. Yeah. But but I kind of liked when you you couldn't have that happen mm. until later in the playoffs mm. because well, for one thing, I guess uh, just to avoid the possibility of of a team kind of cleaning your clock all season and then succumbing to you very shortly after in a short series uh, at least, you know, it it had to be in a longer series before, but it's hard to get around these things with the way they're scheduling them and the playout and the the television demands. So to shift over to the ALDSs, 
Houston is up two to one yep. in the Astros Twins series. So it's uh, just kind of come down to the starting pitching, I yep. guess, largely in this series. Yeah. You know, Justin Verlander, to name another guy who had a reputation for not stepping up in the postseason and has kind of changed that lately. He yeah. pitched well <laughs> in yeah, game one. And then Pablo Lopez was brilliant for the Twins in yeah, Game 2. Schramber sure was, was uh, shaky, as as we were concerned that he might be, based on his yeah. recent performance. And then in Game 3, we had kind of a vintage Christian Javier performance. And, and you know, he's not been as good this season as he looked like in the playoffs previously. But yeah. down the stretch, like his last few starts, he's kind of looked like the old Christian Javier. And, and he looked really good again. Yeah, I didn't get to watch like a ton of that game because mm-hmm. of my comings and goings from Chase, although the, they were nice enough to put it up on the big board. Um, mm-hmm. So then I got to see a little bit more of it. But it really has been a, a story of of the pitching. Just imagine how much worse the discourse would have been if the Twins hadn't won that game, and then like everything looked like it could have been a sweep. That mm-hmm. would have been again yeah. a sweep. It's not a. Mm, we're going to talk about <laughs> we'll it. We'll get but, there in just a second. But <laughs> yeah, um, if I were the Twins, my goal would be to score more runs and allow a few of them. It's yeah. a hot take. I think that's a great goal. Yeah, uh, Javier did walk five guys, of course, in five innings. Like, the Twins had their chances. They went one for nine in runners with runners in yes. scoring position. And, like, same with Not the fair. Phillies in, the, in that game when the Braves came back. Like, the Phillies had yeah. guys on constantly and just were not converting. You yep. know, it it's, doesn't really mean anything. It's just that that really matters in these playoff games. You, you got you to gotta hit with runners in scoring position. It's tough otherwise to win. All it means is that, like... Baseball is really hard, you know, mm-hmm. like sometimes yeah. uh, we should say that part because it's yeah. true. It's like it's yeah. really hard. So many of the great plays in the playoffs come down to someone making a mistake or just like doing something yep. that you wouldn't normally recommend that they do. Like Sam wrote for his Substack about the the great Carlos Correa play in the wild card yeah. round and how he was probably like a little out of position and kind of yeah. like going the wrong way and and it worked out wonderfully and then the Austin Riley throw I, I guess he wasn't like out of position but you also didn't expect him to to be in position for that right. play right so so many of these things rely on just some small infinitesimal error or yep. someone just being in a position to take advantage of something and it's like not repeatable or predictable but it's all important in these games and and of course the Jordan show is happening again so, I mean, yeah. Jordan is just, just I, scary. It's uh, it's not a first for him, but you've you've experienced this as a fan firsthand. So yeah, I feel like the twins do feel very Mariners-y. Maybe I've said this already. Not really the team itself, but just like the trajectory of this playoffs. Right, they get the mm-hmm. monkey off their back, and then Jordan's there to be like, "Hello, I yeah. am the reward." And it's like, "Oh no, this isn't very fun at all." Mm-hmm. I know that the answer isn't that he should just never be pitched. To <laughs> but he should be pitched to less, maybe. Yeah. Like maybe <laughs> we should something. pitch yeah. him less. We should throw to him less than we mm-hmm. are. I mean, I'm not doing it, so what do I care? But um, I don't know. I feel for Twins fans um, because it doesn't get better, and like they might rally to win that series, and then it'll be sort of a moot point. But um, 
you know, you think that your experience of it now is the worst, but then you realize that like, oh, now your home runs are going to be the ones they show next year if mm. the Astros make the postseason. And to that I say, I'm sorry, but <laughs> I bet more of them will feature twins in the 2024 playoffs if Minnesota doesn't come back to win. If they do, then um, they'll probably stick with the Mariners ones because Houston advanced and won the World Series in that year. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, he's just, he is such a cool combination of stuff. Like he doesn't always, you know, get into one, but when he does, it goes real far and he is discerning and um, mm -hmm. man, he really like, it's just, it's big feel different in your chest kind of power. So yeah, yeah. Sorry guys. And the Astros are not the only Texas team raking because the Rangers are just obliterating Baltimore. So yeah. this will be this game at least will be over by the time people are hearing this. It's uh, looking over-ish as we speak. So if this is it, yeah. If this is it for the Orioles, I, I mean, you know, we we sort of did like a a pre-mortem for them when we we talked about the fact that like. This is not the the finished product. This is not the right. the fully operational, mature Baltimore Orioles team that is going to emerge from this rebuild. And, oh, yeah. and Orioles fans will look back probably and and say, "Oh, that was just the beginning of right. a long and storied run." You can't yeah. count on those things completely, but they are as well positioned for that as as anyone. And not even all of the the parts have arrived, so they're just going to get better and better, especially if they spend at some point or make some moves. So that said, if if they go down quickly to Texas here, that's obviously going to be very disappointing in the way that, you know, like last year you could have said, hey, you went from historically terrible to being in it right up until the end right. of the season. Yeah, but then we didn't make the playoffs. Still disappointing. Right. Or this season, hey, you won 100 games. You made it back to the playoffs. Right. Yeah, but then we had a quick exit. It's still going to be disappointing. Yeah. But, you know, I guess in our, our playoff draft, you drafted – I drafted the Astros offense. I think you drafted the Rangers offense, right? I did, yeah. Both of those offenses have performed quite well. Yeah. And I think uh, – I don't know if you shorted Orioles pitching, but, uh, you know, hard to apportion credit or blame there. It's a bit of both good offense, not the best pitching. Kyle Bradish was fine. He was, he was effective. He was, he was good. Grayson Rodriguez, not so much. Yeah. That didn't go as well. And uh, the Orioles kind of came back and made it close, at least in game two, or it kind of looked closer than it, it felt and was for most of the game by the, the end of it. So, I mean, the Rangers are, are just, they look dominant right now. It's been a streaky team. Like, I don't know if it's fundamentally a streaky team, like this is right. just the quality of these Rangers or not, but... They have been streaky, that is for sure, to this point. So sometimes they look like, man, they can't hit, they can't win, they can't pitch, they, they're going to be out of the running entirely. Other times they just will sweep people and they are just like, the, the, you can't beat them. So, right. you know, the first game was was very close. It was a one-run game. The right. next one was a three-run game, but not for most of it. Yeah, and it wasn't as close. I mean, like that bullpen remains vulnerable, right? Yeah, oh yeah gonna take anything away like they're very capable of coughing up a lead <laughs> mm -hmm. but they were able to hold on just long enough to not do that yeah like i want to be careful not to sound like i'm gloating about how the orioles have 
performed in the postseason because my position specifically about our projections of the Orioles was that like, this is a good team and it's, it's incomplete. It has vulnerabilities. I think most of the playoff field has vulnerabilities. So are they failing at times in the way that I expected? I I guess I think that like, this is a really fun, exciting club and this, you know, isn't going great, but they, you know, seem perfectly capable of getting back up again after getting kicked in the mouth here. So I think that we aren't done seeing this particular roster in the playoffs and probably a bunch for the, you know, the, you know, foreseeable future. And sometimes you just run into a team that's like gonna hit a bunch of home runs. Like, what are you Mm -hmm. gonna, what are you gonna do? Sometimes that happens, you know, it happens a lot with this particular lineup because it's pretty good. So (laughs) if you're an Orioles fan and this result holds, you know, the score holds, uh, and you know you're sitting at home watching the rest of the the playoffs. Like you can root um, against the Rangers bullpen, and you'll probably find some satisfaction at some point. Mm-hmm. You know, in some ways, I guess it's good news for Baltimore that like the the issues do seem to be both very obvious and ones that are you know if they decide to spend some money theoretically solvable in this offseason, right? Mm -hmm. When you look at the teams where they are kind of offense needy, if they want to supplement with free agent, you know, signings, that's harder to do this winter because the markets, you know, the cupboard's not bare, but it's closer. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's certainly not as robust as last winter was. So, if you're nervous that the Orioles won't spend money, I think that's a reasonable thing to be worried about also. But their, you know, their needs are, I think, pretty clear. I think they can either address them by spending some money or if they're really keen to not do that, you know, they certainly have a farm system from which to deal. And as you said, like they got, they got a lot of guys coming still who are pretty exciting. So I don't want to like force people to move on from their disappointment too soon because like I know how it feels to have been out of the playoffs for a long time and get back in and then you're so excited and then like it doesn't go anywhere. Although the Mariners didn't win the division, so I guess um, got one on me there, (laughs) Orioles fans. But like you know, when the dust settles, I think there's a lot to be optimistic about in Baltimore going forward. So hopefully that's some sort of a balm for uh, the winter. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for the Rangers, it's just like we talked about how they're kind of like the AL equivalent of Atlanta, just the lineup depth, just top to bottom, no weak spots, at least in terms of the production this yeah. season. And yeah, we were all like, wow, Evan Carter is so good. And now it's like, oh, yeah, they have Josh Young. He was like the, the right. young new hotness before he got hurt right. and Evan Carter showed up. He's also really good. Yeah. And then like yeah. Jonah Heim is, is good. And then like Mitch Garver is good. And like yeah. all these good you don't expect them to to have the hero moment necessarily but pretty much anyone in this lineup is capable capable. of that yeah 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 so (laughs) they are they're gonna be uh sort of scary but but you know the pitching remains vulnerable and and maybe over a longer series that gets exposed or the bats go a little cold don't get the the great situational hitting or timely hitting and uh then we're having a different conversation in a week or two Yeah, I mean, this is why it's a weird exercise because it's Mm -hmm. like you look at guys, you look at teams, they feel invulnerable sometimes. And then, like, it's a new series against an entirely new club. And, you know, you start back at zero. So, 
Yeah, well, look how good the Diamondbacks bullpen has been in their series so far, two games, but but you wouldn't have said that was their strength. I, I know it's gotten a little bit better post-Seawald and some of the other sure. additions and changes they've made, but you wouldn't say it was a strength of theirs, really, but, no. but it's performed really well. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the flip side of the Dodgers not getting those hits that they need. It's uh, the Diamondbacks pitchers right. and sometimes the Diamondbacks bullpen preventing them from getting those hits. So... We will return to all these series that are ongoing next time, and maybe they won't be ongoing by then. And, of course, we'll talk about the championship series matchups when those are set. So, lastly, in closing, I think you said last time that we were going to get emails about sweeps and the terminology of, of sweeps in the postseason and also about my hot conductor take. And, boy, did we ever get emails about both of those subjects. Boy, we got so many emails. So many emails. We Long weekend, holiday so weekends. I'm blowing emails. up all weekend and every subject line is like sweeps. Conductors or like sweeps and conductors. Sometimes it was Conductor a, a twofer. Sweeps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so as for the sweeps, right, the the contention by listener Nathan was uh, that we can't have a sweep during a playoff series, that nobody actually sweeps. This was a pedantic point because uh, if during the regular season yeah. the team wins three of, of the first four, they still have to play the fourth game. But we don't say that they swept the series after three, whereas in the postseason, the series just ends. You don't play the the entire scheduled series, all the, the games that you could have played. Right. And thus, uh, maybe we shouldn't call it a sweep because uh, you didn't win all the games. You just won as many as you needed to to end the series before the other team won one. And the suggestion right. was we need some new terminology for this. Now, yes. I would say... At least half of the responses were probably, what are you talking about? <laughs> we can right. absolutely continue to call these sweeps, <laughs> which, yes. look, I mean, we're going to keep calling them sweeps, I think. Uh, we're not going to change I mean, anyone's I call, mind I've here. I've called them a sweep like four, yeah. s- seven times in this yeah. episode. Seven times, yeah. at least. As, as with many of the pedantic points, we all know what we mean, and it's fine, and yeah. there's no confusion. But this one made me think and made us think, right, about the, the nature of a playoff sweep versus a regular season sweep. Now, I think speaking for the the people who said, no, this is fine, I'm just going to quote one listener, Kenneth, who other listeners made the same or similar points, but Kenneth wrote, I completely disagree with the assessment of the term sweep that the previous email argued for. Nathan was right. The definitions change in the postseason, but it's the definition of series that changes, not the definition of sweep. Sweep, as I think most people understand the term, simply means that one team won all the games that were played in a given series. In the regular season, of course, you play all the games as scheduled, so you can only sweep a series if you win all the scheduled games. As you covered extensively and hilariously in the run-up to the postseason last year, however, a playoff series is actually of indeterminate length. I forgot that bit of ours. <laughs> Probably oh, for the best we went, that we didn't bring it back this year. But We, we really, <laughs> we couldn't have. We exhausted it, the horses. Yeah, we, we remembered to brief people on, on how many games you had to win yeah. at each playoff round. <laughs> Kenneth continues, it is only as long as it needs to be to determine a winner. So what is commonly called a seven game series only means it could go for a maximum of seven possible games, not that seven games are going to be played. If one team wins the first four games of the series, the rest do not need to be played. And I would feel fully justified calling that a sweep as only four games were played and one team won all four. Yeah, that's fine. I agree. (laughs) It's okay. I think as long as we don't say 
that they swept the seven game series or something like maybe that would be a right. mis- misleading but yeah for the most part and i think i even said something to misleading. this effect last time just like yeah you yeah. know you you won all the games that you could win that were played so close enough it's a little bit different but it's still a sweep the series itself is different but among the people who wrote in to suggest alternate terms that we could use instead of sweep i would say dust or dusting was the most common suggestion. Very popular. So, yeah, speaking for for the crowd, Taylor said, often we see fans bring a broom to the park to jeer at the opposing club when a sweep is imminent. It seems fitting that we should use the term dusting, dusted, dust for a playoff sweep for a few reasons. One, a playoff sweep is shorter. They did not need the full slate of games to dispose of the opposing team. Although I guess a playoff sweep can sometimes be longer than a a regular, regular season sweep. If you sweep a a best of seven, if you win four, then that's going to be longer than... No, (laughs) you can't sweep a best of seven. You can't sweep a best of seven. I I understand. No, 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 Ben. No, you can't sweep a... (laughs) No, no. You know what this is? This is striking out the side. This is the... This is what people are going to do with this. So don't encourage them because that's but, what they're they're going to. F- so you're saying that you can't sweep a best of seven. Even if you win all four, you still you can't say I swept the best of seven series. I, I think. OK, I, but yeah, well, okay. you can't say you I wouldn't say swept the seven game series like that would suggest right. that you played seven played games, seven games. And that would mean that you didn't sweep. So, yeah. Right. But OK. OK. Yeah. OK. 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 <laughs> OK. We almost started a whole new round of emails there. Oh, that was God. dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> so so Taylor said you uh, did not need the full slate of games to dispose of the opposing team. So a playoff sweep is shorter in that sense. What do we do when our house is only a little dirty and a broom is overkill for the job at hand? We break out the duster. Dusting is a bit of a shot at the losing side. Number two, it suggests that they were so outmatched that we didn't need the big broom to deal with you. And it sounds belittling. And three, Taylor says, I'm a gamer myself. And you often hear players say I dusted them when they've defeated an enemy with ease. I like the overlap here and I feel it could help in leading to widespread adoption of the terminology. Okay, so I I think that dusting is fine, but I'm worried about how how this individual cleans their home because a broom (laughs) and a duster are for different projects. That's a different... You're cleaning different surfaces. <laughs> I guess that's true. So we, like, we've, we've talked about dusting on the Patreon bonus pods. So there's there's a tease for you. Sign up for Patreon. You can hear us talk about dusting and hy- hygiene and house cleanliness. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of opinions about that yes. subject. Yeah. And, and ours uh, differ to some extent. Nathan, the original question asker, suggested mop. So right. you mop a team out of the playoffs, you saturate them, drag them around the floor, and then squeeze the life out of them until they are literally flushed down the drain. Oh, boy. <laughs> Patrick said, I propose that since sweeping is a way to clean a floor and doing so in the postseason is more efficient, two instead of three games, for instance, although, again, sometimes it's four instead of three, it should be renamed to a more efficient cleaning method, the vacuum mm. or the Roomba. The Rangers Roomba the Rays has a nice swing ring to it, in my opinion. A Roomba feels too... Too brand specific or... Well, and too directionless. Like, you know, mm. I don't oh, have yeah. a Roomba. I don't have a Roomba, but my, my, I'm given to understand that they just kind of bang around into stuff and like they vacuum <laughs> at the same time. Whereas like, you know, you're doing stuff to, to win a playoff series. So, yeah. you know, yeah. give yourself some credit. You're True. not... 
Yeah. Yeah. The newer Roombas will will develop a sense of their surroundings and and they will know where the obstacles are. So it won't just be bumper cars like, oh, I bounced into a wall. Guess I got to go another way. But they'll like have a map of of the the area. So I guess it's a little more intentional maybe. But yeah, I'm with you on that. And then listener Joe suggested advanced without loss. So they went AWOL. We could rebrand. We could rebrand AWOL as advancing without a loss, which is, uh, I guess, one way to say it. We also got like snuffed. You know, you you snuffed out their their playoff hopes, your championship mm. hopes. So several suggestions, all uh, fine and good and valid. Probably not needed, but <laughs> we've we've hashed this out. And thank you for the many suggestions. And thank you also for the many, many emails. I would say even more emails about my conductor take, which uh, very briefly was just a, a semi-facetious suggestion. Semi, Don't, not entirely. Okay, but, I was going to say. <laughs> no, you, I'm not trying to say it was all a joke. You got to own this, man. No, yeah. And I'm happy to own it because I received a lot of support. Not unanimous. Opinions were strongly divided. This this really provoked just a strong response and a very divided response where some people are like, what are you talking about? And others are like, you're completely right. Like, I'm with you. And and from people who would know, you know, like we, we got emails from conductors as we anticipated we would. And we got emails from members of orchestras and like professional orchestras, like <laughs> some pretty like high caliber players, some of whom totally backed me up. And and again, my contention was not that conductors serve no purpose, <laughs> but that during the actual performance or recital itself with high-level musicians, because we were likening this to base coaches on the baseball field, and I'm saying, you know, usually baseball players, uh, they know what they're doing out there, but, but base coaches are sometimes helpful. I was suggesting that conductors are even less often helpful in that situation and that you could just kind of let the players play and they'd be fine. A lot of people said absolutely. Like, we even got an email from a conductor who was like, yeah, we're overrated. Like, <laughs> at least when it comes to the, the the performance itself. And then there were members of orchestras who wrote in like, yes, like, thank you. You know, I can't say this. Thank you for, for speaking for us. You know, <laughs> it's like there would there would be a backlash. You know, there's some some conductors are vindictive. They rule with an, an iron wand and baton. And uh, and we need you to, to be our voice here. And said, you know, look, I can do this in my sleep. We've practiced so much. Like, we're professionals here. You know, someone said, I, I make a point of making eye contact with the conductor once or twice a performance so that they think I'm looking at them, but really I'm not. Then there were others who said, yeah, absolutely, they serve a purpose. And again, I was just talking about during the performance. I know they serve all sorts of purposes uh, off the field, so to speak, in, in terms of, you know, determining the program and uh, prepping the orchestra. And, you know, there's a concert master who's maybe different from the conductor who's playing an important part and, and is actually playing. I mean, that's the thing. I think some maybe orchestra members felt a bit miffed maybe that the conductor gets the biggest round of applause and they're the one without the instrument up there, you know, which is something that prompted this for me because my daughter, Sloane, she went through a phase recently where she just wanted to watch videos of orchestras playing Aww. things. So we kept pulling up often like movie scores 
and she would just be like orchestra and we would bring up the orchestra (laughs) which was great and very cute except then she started imitating the conductor because the conductor's up there waving (laughs) their arm and and sloan's there waving her arm and and i wanted to be like no like emulate you know the violinists uh, emulate someone who's actually playing the music as opposed to the person who's just up there already getting maybe more credit than they deserve i guess the applause they get is maybe in part for like the the prep that they helped do and uh, the practice and they they got this orchestra into shape and determined the program and all of that but also they they they're just like the star of the performance and they're the one up there who's who's not uh, at least playing music so anyway we got we got some some firm rebukes and we yeah. got some and by we i mean i <laughs> yeah i was going to say you got to you got to wear this one like you know yeah, but I'm I'm willing to wear it because yeah. uh, I got enough support here to feel like I'm onto something. And a lot of people were like, I've had this thought. I've had this conversation. Like somehow I touched a nerve here. This is like a hot button issue here, like the worth of conductors. I told you, I told you, Ben, <laughs> that we have enough people who do every kind of job in our <laughs> wonderful listener group. You know, base. What are they? They're listeners. I don't know. They're the people who like the show. But um, some of them are Patreon supporters. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. Yeah. I knew. I knew we would get a bunch of emails. <laughs> we would get so many emails. And you know what, Ben? We got so many emails. We got yep. so many emails. Yeah. But the conductors even, <sighs> they took it in stride. You know? They did. They were very gracious for the most there part. There may be some conductors who who swore off the show entirely and said, I'm never listening to this, this dreck, this drivel again. They've insulted my profession and my vocation. But a lot of them wrote the, in. They. And- they. They, they insulted the profession. He, but a lot of them wrote in and uh, either supported me or, you know, uh, politely and uh, and and patiently and considerately uh-huh. tried Explained. to to enlighten yeah. me. Right, but yeah. uh, someone in our Patreon group said that the conductor bit reminded me of of an old band joke. What do you do if a musician can't play well enough? Take away their instrument, give them a couple sticks, and make them a drummer. What do you do if they can't even play drums? Take away one stick and make them a conductor. Oh, boy. I didn't come up with this joke. I'm just repeating it. And then what's the difference between an orchestra and a train? A train needs a conductor. Oh, wow. Some people have had, like, real hard times with conductors. And yeah, they are out the first. for blood. Yeah, yeah. and there are, there are conductor-less ensembles and, and orchestras that, that have shown that it is possible. But, uh, yeah, look, I will concede that, that there is some utility to the conductor, even during the performance. But I will suggest also that it is uh, – <laughs> I will suggest that, that it is uh, perhaps – Overvalued or emphasized. That is what I will say. Baltimore has scored a run. It is the top of the fifth inning. There's a runner on first with two outs as we conclude this. I'm just saying that tomorrow I'm going to be trying to get stuff done. It's going to be a busy day. We we might, well, we're definitely going to have three games. We might only have three games, but we're going to have three games. I'm writing on one of them. It's very stressful to go to the ballpark. I don't normally have social anxiety, but I do end up having it in the press box sometimes. And I'm going to be getting all of these emails. 
and they're going to be for you. <laughs> yep. yep. Sorry you for yelling. Just, you could just uh, archive those. That one's for Ben. I will. That's okay. Yeah, I will handle that's it. For yeah. ben. There have been for too ben. many for me to answer each personally, but I appreciate each one. I started off answering all of them, and then they kept coming and coming and coming. Yeah. It's like I can't keep up with this pace. Uh, anyway. All right. Well, we will update that Orioles game in the outro just in case you don't know where to get baseball scores except on the Effectively Well yeah. podcast. And also, I should say, tentatively, we are planning our first playoff live stream this yes. weekend, we can say. So yes. Sunday, right? Sunday. The, the Sunday, first, Sunday, Sunday. First game of the ALCS. We yes. are going to do our first of two Patreon playoff live yes. streams where we banter and we chat and we natter away during a game that is being played while listeners listen in and uh, chat with us and with each other. And we usually bring some some pals on too yeah. to help us talk because it's hard to talk for a long time. Such Although a long time. <laughs> the pitch clock helps, but you can – Sign up for Patreon at the appropriate tier and also join our Discord group for patrons only, which is where we did these last year, which seemed to go swimmingly. So yes. I think we will do that again. Yes, there were far fewer like someone gets weirdly delayed by a lot for no good reason when we did <laughs> mm -hmm. it in Patreon than really any of the other services we've used. So, yeah, <laughs> we hope uh, we hope folks will join us. Uh, it tends to be a good fun time, and yeah, I guess we gotta we gotta round up some pals, don't yes, we, Ben? We do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, we'll work on that. All right, here I am back for the outro to confirm that the Orioles did indeed succumb to the Rangers. The final score was seven to one. So the Orioles' playoff hopes for this season are definitely deceased. The Orioles are pining for the fjords. Condolences to Orioles fans. And I note that Orioles.com, the headline there says, Sweep sends Orioles home. So I guess they're okay with that construction, though not with that outcome. Of course, the Orioles famously hadn't been swept since May of 2022, which is one of the longest regular season streaks ever. That's still alive. As Sarah Langs pointed out, the Orioles are the second team, excluding 2020, to be swept in a playoff series after not being swept in any regular season series of two or more games. The only previous team fitting that description? The 1998 Padres, managed by Bruce Bochy, whose Rangers just swept the Orioles. What a weird world. A few more follow-ups to topics we talked about last time. First, on the topic of Tyler Clippard, who just retired, and whether he was the best or one of the best setup men of all time, I determined that by one definition at least he was or was close, just going by baseball reference war and setting some maximums for games started and saves. Michael pointed out, well, shouldn't holds be a consideration for the greatest setup man? And Clippard did indeed have a whole lot of them, 226, which seems to have been fifth all time if we retroactively apply holds to players who predated that stat. Seems like Mike Stanton leads with 266, and then Tony Watson, Arthur Rhodes, Joe Smith, and Tyler Clippard. And then Ryan noted, isn't an indication of a superlative setup man that they had one or multiple seasons in which their team's primary closer was either injured or traded, leading to them becoming the primary closer by process of elimination? And yes, I think that makes some sense. I had almost DQ'd Clippard on the grounds that he had too many saves to be the quintessential setup man. 75 career. But the two seasons when he was, for all or part of the season, a dedicated closer, he was not the first choice. So for the 2012 Nats, 
Drew Storen was hurt. Manager Davey Johnson tried out a couple other guys. Brad Lidge and Henry Rodriguez, they were inconsistent, so Clippard stepped into the role. And then with the 2015 A's, Clippard started the season closing because Sean Doolittle was hurt. Doolittle, who also recently retired. So it's not that managers were necessarily looking at Clippard and seeing closer material. It's just that he was the best setup man on the premises when the capital C closers were unavailable. And so, yeah, maybe that speaks to his qualifications as a great setup man. Also on the topic of former GM Paul Richards and his quixotic quest to trade one entire roster for another, specifically his offer to trade the entire roster of the 1964 Colt 45s, soon to be Astros, for the Milwaukee Braves roster. We mentioned that that would have changed baseball history in some significant ways. Henry Aaron would have been an Astro instead of a Brave for all those years. But maybe we undersold the impact there because listener Jack pointed out the Braves moved to Atlanta for the 1966 season, affecting for Aaron a change of ballparks from one of the tougher home run hitting parks in Milwaukee to what, until Colorado entered MLB, was the best home run hitting park in the majors. From 66 through 74, Aaron hit 190 homers in Atlanta and 145 on the road. If Aaron had been playing his home games in the Astrodome from 65 through 74, he without a doubt would have lost a large number of homers, such that he might not have reached 700 for his career, never mind 714, much less 755. So yes, that might have really altered the course of some significant history. Not that it came close to happening. Meg was mentioning, by the way, that that sounded like an effectively wild hypothetical. I was reminded that it actually was one. Episode 1217, we talked about an entire team roster swap. And maybe it's not totally a hypothetical. Listener Terry pointed this out in our Facebook group, and I know that there have been some similar situations in other sports. He writes, we wondered how fans would react if that happened. It would be the real test of whether we're just rooting for laundry. Well, it kind of sort of did happen in 1961 when Calvin Griffith moved the Senators from Washington to Minnesota to become the Twins and the American League to avoid losing the antitrust exemption immediately replaced them with an expansion Senators team. I have an older friend who grew up in D.C., and he said it was weird. The old Senators had some promising young players like Harmon Kilbrew and Bobby Allison, who became core members of the good Twins teams of the mid-60s. The new Senators, as expected, were brutal. He remembers going to games that first season with the Twins visiting and being emotionally confused. Now I'm rooting against guys I cheered for last year and for guys who six months ago I didn't know existed. That would be tough, particularly if you were a kid who didn't understand. There apparently was some backlash. The outgoing Senators drew 740. 40,000 in 1960, and the new Senators drew 597,000 in 61 while playing a few more home games, and while having almost the same record. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay almost ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Cal Pringle, Icy Helicopter, Manu, Dan Love, and Ross Lambert. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the aforementioned Patreon Discord group for patrons only, as well as monthly bonus episodes and those playoff live streams we just talked about. We will send the deets to our Patreon people in a Patreon message when the day draws closer. You can also get discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships and so much more. Check it out, patreon.com slash effectivelywild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site, and anyone and everyone can contact us via email at podcastandfancrafts.com. Send us your questions and comments. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. 
Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We'll be back with another episode later this week. Talk to you then. Romantic, pedantic, and hypothetical. Semantic and frantic, real or theoretical. They give you the stats and they give you the news. It's a baseball podcast you should choose. Effectively Wild is here for you. About all the weird stuff that players do. Authentically strange and objectively styled. Let's play ball. It's effectively wild. It's effectively wild. It's effectively wild.